I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. And I'm Matt Bernico. And this week on the show, we have a very cool, very fun guest, Stephen Hannigan, a professor of Spanish and Hispanic studies at the University of Guelph. Uh, here to talk about his extremely cool book called Sandino's Nation, which is about Ernesto Cardinal, everybody's favorite patron saint of this podcast, and uh, Sergio Ramirez, another uh, politician and writer from Nicaragua. Yeah, it's such a cool book. I think it gives, I, I mean, on this podcast, you only ever hear, I think, the very, the, our version of the story of Cardinal. <laughs> and uh, we're not wrong, I think, but uh, there is a lot more context. There's a lot more uh, intrigue and uh, a lot more controversy, I guess, <laughs> than you maybe you would have guessed. Uh, it's a really cool book, though, about Cardinal and also about Sergio Ramirez. And it's also a very interesting way to uh, think about the building of a nation sort of post-revolution uh, through writing. So, uh, listen, if you love the power of the written word, then this one's for you, I guess. <laughs> it's a really cool book, though. So you're going you're gonna to dig it for sure. Um, all right, let's go to the interview. Thanks for coming on the show, Stephen. Whenever we have a guest, we ask them to do a bit of an elevator pitch for their project. It can be a, a long elevator ride or a short one, depending. Uh, but the book is quite long, so we'll see. Uh, tell us a little bit about this book, Sandino's Nation. Uh, what's it about? What were you trying to do in the book? And uh, maybe what, what led you to write it? What I was trying to do changed over the years, many years that I was writing the book. It's a very long book, as the two of you know. And it threatened to be even longer because I started out bizarrely trying to compare writers who had participated in revolutionary movements in Nicaragua, Angola, and Mozambique. And at some point in the early 2000s, I spent a year or two just writing and writing and writing. And I got to about, I don't know, hundreds of pages. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Nobody's going to publish this. And I went off and did other things for a few years. And then I... I actually came back to it and I began to, sorry, I'm, I came back to it and I began to um, look at it just as Nicaragua and just as Cardinal and Ramirez. And the more I worked on it, the more that binary, not quite opposition, but complementarity seemed to seem to function as a way of understanding 
relationships between literature and and nation and between social change in literature and yes also to some extent between faith-based communities and and literature and nation so the book ended up being a comparison of the careers of uh, Sergio Ramirez who is a a novelist and essayist and short story writer who was in uh, vice president of Nicaragua in the 1980s, uh, and Ernesto Cardenal, who, as you guys are very well aware, is a was a Catholic priest and also a poet who was the minister of culture in Nicaragua in the 1980s, and these two became, I found as I went on, an interesting way of focusing where the Nicaraguan Revolution, the Sandinista Revolution of the 1979 came from because it allowed me to see that they represented two of the essential forces of the middle and upper classes in Nicaragua in that uh, Cardinal was from an old conservative family, um, predominantly family predominantly of white or European descent uh, in Granada, which was the 19th century home of conservatism in Nicaragua, and that he was from a strongly Catholic background and indeed became a priest, while Ramirez represented in a certain way the other side of the coin. He was from a more modest background. I guess you'd say there was a striving rural lower middle class that sort of became rural upper middle class, but very definitely mestizo. Uh, that is mixed race with uh, quite a lot of both indigenous and African ancestry, and also that he was unusually for his generation, although less unusually today in, in Central America, was brought up as an evangelical Protestant, and that uh, also he was a prose writer while Cardinal was a poet. So, uh, and this, among other things, it allowed me to think a little bit differently about the respective roles of liberals and conservatives in the Nicaraguan revolution and to see it, see them as two of the, the essential forces behind the revolution and to conceive the revolution in that way, rather than conceiving it in terms of in, uh, sort of the way it was depicted by the media in the 80s and 90s as sort of, you know, who was, who was pro-Moscow and who was more moderate. And uh, that kind of stuff actually fades away when you look at it with real perspective, I think, and and it becomes more important to see who came from a conservative background in Granada and who came from a liberal background in Leon. And so Cardenas' uh, role in all that is very important, and that's and between the two of them, I, I realized I had a book. Of course, as I kept writing, the darn thing kept getting longer and longer, and I was terrified with some of my chapters sprawled out to sort of 100 pages in manuscript that I didn't even dare tell my editor. And when he, I told him I had the manuscript finished, he said, all right, make two photocopies and send it to me. And the, I think the final manuscript was about 1,000 pages. So I had two copies of 1,000 pages. I had to put them in a box. And I sent them off to the editor. And I got an email back a few days later saying, the eagle has landed. <laughs> That's great. 
Yeah, I love that. Well, it is a really cool book. It is a big one too, which, which is good. It just makes it better. The longer the book, the better. That's my life motto. <laughs> it's not really, but um, in this case, it's definitely true. Uh, your book is so cool. It touches on a lot of the themes that we end up talking about on this podcast a lot. And uh, I want to talk about Ramirez specifically, but maybe in a little bit. Um, maybe we can start off with talking about Ernesto Cardinal. He's definitely one of our favorite, I don't know, historical characters on this podcast. I think we talk about him, um, man, well, not every episode, but pretty often. So uh, how, how would you, as someone who's really studied him and, and know, know maybe the more, more of the ins and outs of his life, how would you introduce him? Uh, who was Cardinal? How would you, uh, how'd you get interested in his life and work? Uh, what does he mean for Nicaragua? I think for, I think most people became aware of Cardinal. I mean, most people, depends on who you consider as most people, but um, I think his international image obviously was amplified by the Nicaraguan revolution. And during the 1980s, he incarnated the ideal of the the, the progressive revolutionary priest. Um, the fact that he was also a poet and a, at times a somewhat mystical poet uh, certainly helped. Um, I got interested in his life and work. I'm not quite sure when I started reading him. It must have been in my late teens when I was beginning to read in Spanish. And of course, he was not difficult to read, so that helped. Um, and the the and then as an undergraduate, I made I guess what in my generation was a a ritual, which was a, a trip to Nicaragua in the early 1980s to see the revolution. And so I bought one of his I bought a, an anthology of his poetry in Managua in uh, an edition of the old uh, Ediciones Nueva Nicaragua, which was the publishing company set up after the revolution. And I read all of that over and over again. And so that was one of the, I suppose, one of the ways in which I came to know his work. Um, I actually was in, responsible for, uh, guilty of, a slightly mad attempt to get him to be our graduation speaker when I graduated <laughs> as an undergraduate. And he was considering coming. Um, and then at the last moment got diverted to some other international forum. And the Nicaraguan government offered us a priest named Edgardo Perales, who was a uh, another liberation theology priest who was in the government as a diplomat. Uh, and then he was blocked from entering the country. And so we ended up without a graduation speaker, which made me very unpopular with the various of my 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 classmates. But um, so that was that was also an involvement, I suppose, I had with Cardinal at an early age. So I'd been reading him for a, a long, long time. And uh, I suppose when I realized my book, planned book, comparing the three countries wasn't going to work out. I came back to Cardinal with greater fervor in middle age and tried to work out all that he was saying. And I suppose I was also trying to work out or reconcile with some of my early, you know, early, my useful experiences doing activism to, against U.S. intervention in Central America, doing activism uh, by going to Nicaragua and that sort of thing, and writing articles on it for student papers and that kind of stuff. Uh, that's so wild to hear your story about trying to get Cardinal to come uh, to come speak at the graduation. I love that. That's <laughs> so great. And 
the fact that you ended up without a speaker, what a what a lovely anecdote. So thanks for that. Um, well, there are there are a lot of influences on Cardinal's politics and poetry, and we could probably spend you know the whole hour talking about them. But I'll ask you to uh, pare them down a little bit. Uh, you parse them out in the book quite well. Um, what are some of those influences? Maybe we could start with kind of the literary and poetry side, and then we could talk about the political side afterwards. Yeah. So Cardinal came out of an environment where poetry. Writing poetry was a natural thing to do. And I think this is true of people who are good at a lot of, a lot of times, of people who are good at a particular activity that you often find they come out of an environment where that activity is just part of the woodwork, as it were. Um, here in Canada, we produce good hockey players because at least until a generation ago, everybody <laughs> played hockey, right? Um, and in the same way in Nicaragua, everybody... Everybody wrote poetry, everybody who was literate. Um, there are certain reasons for this that uh, would take a long time to explain, but it has to do with the novel not developing in the 19th century as it did in many other countries. Um, and the so Cardinal grew up in an environment where two of his closest relatives um, were, uh, were among the, the country's most... Uh, most famous uh, poets. So the that that also was a uh, and they were both sort of mentors to him. They were both about ten or twelve years older than him, and they introduced him to a rather formalistic version of poetry. And they also came out of this conservative Catholic culture in Granada, which however, was a bit different from conservative Catholic culture in, say, Colombia or in Peru, in the sense that the Catholics had become the anti-Americans in, in Nicaragua in the 19th century for reasons related partly to an invasion of Nicaragua by a southern filibuster named uh, William Walker, but also for, for other reasons and related to the Somoza dictatorship and its importation of a kind of Americanized materialism and the fact that Somoza belonged to the Liberal Party. So you had a culture that was Catholic, con socially conservative, yet anti-American, which made it quite unusual in Latin America where those things didn't necessarily all cluster together. And at the same time, it was a culture where everybody wrote poetry. Um, his, so his early influences were definitely Jose Coronel Ortecho and Pablo Antonio Cuadra, who were the two relatives I mentioned earlier, um, who, were, who were 10 or 15 years older than him. And then later he began, he began, under their influence, he became very interested in American poets such as Walt Whitman and particularly Ezra Pound and the exteriorism of Ezra Pound that is a great focus on concrete objects in poetry. Um, he read a bit of Pablo Neruda in youth, but he was a very ethereal, mystical sort of fellow. And uh, Pablo Neruda was a bit too carnal and a bit too a bit too obsessed with women for him. And the so um, it's very interesting if you look at his statements in the 1980s when he was Minister of Culture. Every time he's interviewed in Latin America. He only mentions uh, Neruda as an influence. And that, of course, is because if you're part of a revolution that's being attacked by Ronald Reagan, you 
you can't exactly say that a conservative American like Ezra Pound is your greatest influence. Although he sometimes did say it, even in the 1980s, if he went to the States and was interviewed by NPR or somebody like that. Uh, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, it sounds like a lot of the uh, the broader po- politics of the situation uh, kind of were merged in with the, uh, the poetic um, influences as well. Are there any other explicit political influences for Cardinal during yeah, this time? Yeah, political or, influences um... are complicated because he was part of a class that was oppressed by a liberal dictatorship. And he was born in 1925. And from 1926 to 1934, Nicaragua was occupied by the U.S. Marines. And the primary opposition came from the guerrilla Augusto Cesar Sandino, who became the inspiration for the Sandinistas. But at a sort of civil society level, the opposition was from the Catholic elite of Granada. So what ended up happening was that, in fact, a lot of these people became very anti-liberal and anti-democratic because to them it was democratic America that had invaded them. So therefore it must be bad. Um, And it was trying to displace their culture with a materialistic Protestant culture. So therefore it was their enemy. And the result was that in the 1930s, say when Cardinal was an adolescent and early teenager in his school, a lot of he and a lot of his classmates were big supporters of people like uh, Mussolini and Franco, uh, General Francisco Franco in Spain, in other words, fascists. And that continued into his early 20s. Um, And even when it's funny because he's seen as a great ally of Fidel Castro in Cuba, but when Castro's revolution took place in 1959, Cardinal kept his distance and was not very interested in it. And it was only after 1968, when the Catholic Church expressed an openness to a preferential option for the poor, that he actually began to shift a bit. And in 1970, he makes his climactic visit to Cuba and is converted. But it took a very long time for him to get from being a an upper-class Catholic anti-American student who saw people like Mussolini and Franco as his allies in, in his teen, early, even in his late teens, um, to being the bearded, beret-wearing, long-haired ally of Fidel Castro in the 70s and 80s. That's so interesting. Uh, the, uh, the Cuba trip is always a fascinating piece of Cardinal's life. I think it's also interesting that Cardinal is one of the older players, I guess, in the, the Nicaraguan Revolution. As you say, he, he takes a while to sort of come around. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit more about some of that, too? So he goes to Cuba. He has this conversion experience. Uh, what's that like for Cardinal? And uh, how does he become a, a sort of radical socialist uh, Democrat um, throughout the 70s and into the 80s when he's actually in government? In 1966, Cardinal and some of his decided to found that the only way to have freedom within the Catholic Church and to create values that were non-materialistic was to escape from material society and also to escape from the dictatorship, which was all pervasive and what was it Somoza used to say? Nicaragua is mi finca. Nicaragua is my farm. He owned everything, right? So you had to get a long way away to, to escape him. So Cardinal, with money from some of his 
his upper class cousins and friends who were usually the same people um, established a retreat, a, 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 what we would now call, I suppose, a Christian based community on the Solentiname Archipelago. Now, Lake Nicaragua is the largest lake in Central America, and it goes all the way down to from Granada, the north end, down to the Costa Rican border at the south end. And the Solentinami Archipelago is in the most isolated eastern corner of uh, of the of the of the lake, which takes about 15 hours to cross by boat. And in those days, it was really difficult to get there. Even now, it's not that easy. Um, but they, for example, they just put in a road from eastern Nicaragua in, I think, 2011 or 2012. Um, so in the 1960s, it was a very remote place. And he went there and he created this Christian-based community, which consisted of uh, studying the Gospels, uh, attracting disciples to study the Gospels with him, cre creating a school for the totally illiterate peasants who lived on the island, uh, the main island he lived on, and then the, some of the smaller islands around, and also um, beginning to develop a handicraft culture. For him, it was his poetry, but he also began to paint, and they developed a school of naive landscape painting with bright colors, which the peasants began to adopt. And that became the basis of what's now, you know, an important part of Nicaragua's tourist industry. You go into any market in the country and they're selling Solentiname style paintings. So he, he, very, the, the experience of the 11 or 12 years he was on this island from 1966 to about 1970s, October 1977 is, is a crucial one. And he really develops his, literary aesthetic and his personal approach to life of an engaged Catholicism of uh, working with the peasants and the so and and also actually some of the the handicraft ideas that he would bring to bear as Minister of Culture in Nicaragua from 1979 to 1988 uh, are also developed in the Solentiname archipelago. By the time he decided to make the trip to Cuba in 1970, in fact, he was probably lagging a little bit behind some other um, progressive Christians in Nicaragua in the sense that he, the, as a result of the Medellin conference in 1968, where the, the, the option, preferential option for the poor had been broated, he uh, there were other christian based communities for example in some of the poorer areas of managua that were ideologically already quite far ahead of him and there was a meeting i think in 1969 of progressive christians in nicaragua and i think it may have been a bit of a surprise to cardinal to see how far some of these people had already gone how far they had traveled from i suppose what you would call orthodoxy um and so I think that probably helped to spur his trip to Cuba to realize that he that in fact socialism was going to be part of this um, preferential option for the poor and that he needed to see it. Also, it helped that he was invited to Cuba by uh, Cynthia Vintier, who was a, a, a very important in 
writer in the world of Catholic intellectualism in in Latin America and who would write Cardinal letters saying things like, um, you know, there's no there's no problem living as a Catholic under a communist government, which was something that was, of course, initially completely contrary to his ideas. The, I mean, the other the other influence actually bring in the American angle is uh, Thomas Merton, with whom he he studied, and um, and Merton encouraged him to interest himself more in indigenous peoples, and that was that was an important step too because Cardinal then wrote poems about indigenous peoples, mainly in places like Peru and Panama, but uh, he probably brought that subject into the forefront of Latin American literature at a time when it really wasn't being discussed a whole lot. I mean, there were a couple of people like Jose Maria Arguedas, the Peruvian writer who was brought up in a in a Quechua-speaking community, uh, but it was that was a very progressive side of his work and that eventually connected in certain ways with Cuba and with socialism and with the preferential option for the poor. That's super fascinating to hear you talk about his development like that. Um, that's a really, uh, it's a, a, a great picture. I mean, I think it's definitely helped me fill in some gaps too, just kind of thinking through it. Um, well, th this is fast forwarding a little bit um, past, past some of those things, but um, something in your book that is, is quite interesting to us is uh that uh, there's this particular type of nationalism that's present in the Sandinista revolution. Nationalism is a uh, very complicated idea, uh, especially on the left, and uh, also within Christianity, as we've seen over the last year, I guess. Uh, how would you describe, though, that national project of the Sandinistas, and uh, how did Cardinal contribute to shaping the Nicaraguan identity? Sandinismo started out as the creation of Augusto Cesar Sandino, who was a guerrilla fighter who decided when the Marines occupied Nicaragua in 1926 that he wasn't going to turn in his arms. And he went up into the mountains with uh, 50 men and they tried to arrest him and it didn't work. And so they sent more Marines and they sent more Marines and they ended up fighting an eight-year guerrilla war against him and eventually sort of being drawn to a stalemate. Sandino's ideology was less radical than that of the Sandinistas who took power in 1979 as a result of overthrowing the Somoza dictatorship. Uh, but the, his ideology was more middle class, but it was, uh, and this is, an, I think, a really important point, it was strongly influenced by the Mexican Revolution of 1910 to 1920, which produced a, a kind of cultural flowering on the left in in the 1920s in Mexico, and we think of things like the mural painting of Diego Rivera as, as one part of that. Sandino, at one point in the late 1920s, I think it was 28 or 29, actually snuck out of the mountains of Nicaragua and made his way to Mexico, where he spent almost a year giving talks and engaging in fundraising activities. And he came back very strongly influenced by the Mexican Revolution. So that that became part of the heritage. Now that heritage was then quite obscured because Sandino was, the Marines withdrew, they put Somoza in power effectively in 1934, although not officially till 1937. And Somoza immediately found, lured Sandino to Managua to sign a peace accord and then assassinated him. And that seemed to be the end of Sandinismo. 
However, some of the guerrillas survived. There was one indigenous guerrilla who kept fighting for another four or five years until they killed him. And some of the uh, guerrillas passed their, on their, their um, knowledge, as it were, the, of Sandinismo, their Sandinista heritage to their children. And so you get people like Tomas Borje, who became the minister of the interior in Sandinista Nicaragua, who was the son of one of Sandino's fighters. And these people uh, met up with a man named Carlos Fonseca Amador, who was the illegitimate son of a, of a wealthy industrialist. And Fonseca Amador realized that it was important to, that Sandinismo was an important part of Nicaragua's heritage and that it had been wiped out of the national memory by the Somoza dictatorship, which was, as I said, placed in power by the U.S. Marines in 1934. And the Somoza family ruled Nicaragua as a kind of private fiefdom until they were overthrown by the Sandinistas in July 1979. Uh, Fonseca dispatched people to, some of his followers, to libraries in Mexico and Cuba and Costa Rica to try and revive the history of Sandinismo and find out more, find documents, find letters, find anything that could indicate, to teach them about Sandinismo. But in doing so, he, he did get a lot of help from Cuba and he fused Sandino Sandinismo with a kind of more Marxist version of it. So it became a, a sort of Marxist nationalism, very, very um, based on martyr worship. And I tend to think this is almost an, an indigenous trait that was unconsciously carried on by the Sandinistas. The great martyr of Sandinismo is, of course, Sandino himself, who is lured to Managua thinking he's going to sign a peace deal and then gets assassinated. Um, and the And so there is this worship of the ancestors or worship of the martyrs. And that was then carried over in the 1960s when the Sandinistas were a very small, very beleaguered, not very effective guerrilla force fighting against the Somoza dictatorship. Um, they made important members of their, their uh, group were, were constantly being killed in battle. And so uh, remembering the martyrs, worshiping the martyrs, became another element of Sandinismo that fused with uh, nationalism, with uh, an, an increasingly Marxist tilt to the nationalism. And then Cardenal's contribution to that was to give it a sort of a religion. And, and it couldn't obviously be the, the conservative Catholicism of the upper class in Managua, who, whether they were pro or anti-Samosa, weren't going to stir up too much trouble. Um, so it became the, his reformulation of liberation theology or his, his expansion of liberation theology, uh, during his years in the Solantiname Islands became the religious strand of Sandinismo and fused with the other aspects of anti-imperialist nationalism, martyr worship, and an increasingly acute class analysis. So I, I think that's sort of what I would say about his his um, uh, contribution to Nicaraguan national identity through the creation of the 
the forging of the the send the doctrine of nineteen. 70s to early 1990s Sandinismo. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, again, piecing together lots of different actors and, and influences in Nicaragua and the revolution. Um, kind of continuing on Cardinal's role in in giving uh, the revolution a certain flavor or, or flair, uh, he becomes Minister of Culture, as you mentioned. He organized all kinds of workshops and literacy campaigns and activities to try to get more Nicaraguans involved um, in the, the cultural movement of socialist uh, Nicaragua. So how might uh, we talk about Cardinal's vision of art and culture and how does that relate to other socialist literary or cultural forms like, you know, socialist realism or, or other kinds of uh, forms of art under uh, socialist governments? What's uh, Cardinal's vision for um, people kind of, you know, self-determining a cultural identity under socialism in Nicaragua? He was, as Minister of Culture, Cardinal was a proponent of, um, of culture for the masses. And that meant that he wanted the culture budget to go into helping people who were not already literate to learn to use their their literacy, which in many cases was a newfound literacy, because one of the undeniable achievements of the Sandinista Revolution is possibly the most successful literacy campaign in history, where they reduced the illiteracy rate from uh, about 50 to 60 percent to about 13 to 15 percent in a couple of years. And once those people had become literate, most of them poor peasants in rural areas, um, they were encouraged to express themselves. Now, this is a little bit against socialist realism because it's not democratic centralism. It's not telling them what to think necessarily, although there were clearly very there were clearly sanctioned topics for these uh, poetry workshops. Uh, it could be about, and there were about, in the early days, there were about 80 poetry workshops across the country. There were poetry workshops for peasants. There were poetry workshops for truck drivers. There were poetry workshops for policemen. Um, and the, the, and there were, a lot of them were, people were encouraged to use sort of the rules of Edgar of uh, Ezra Pound. I mean, that was what Cardinal always said, that he was teaching them to, to use the rules of Ezra Pound, but in a simplified form. Um, and some people didn't like that in a simplified form and they felt it was condescending, but other people said, well, you can't go from illiteracy to Ezra Pound in, in three months. So, so you better, it's better to start them with a bit of concrete exteriorist poetry. And so people were encouraged to write things about you know, the the fields they were working in or how beautiful their compañera looked in her military uniform or things like that. Um, but in a, in, a, in a simple, clear, direct language, uh, he de deterred rhyming poetry uh, and so on. Now, this vision came into conflict with the vision of the professional writers in Nicaragua who were led by, by Rosario Murillo, the then and current uh, life partner of Daniel Ortega, uh, who was definitely a proponent of a more high literature and ran the Sandinista literary, mag literary magazine. And these two visions came into conflict. Cardinal, unfortunately, was not well placed to defend his vision because he had become such a media star by the 1980s that really he was one of the Sandinista's most potent weapons against 
the uh, military attacks launched against Nicaragua by the administration of Ronald Reagan. And so they had him constantly touring the world and giving talks in Europe and uh, in the United States and in Japan and everywhere else you could think of. And so he estimates that about half of his time in the first four or five years he was Minister of Culture, he was out of the country, which meant that the burden of defending his policies fell on his deputies who were tended were tended to then get attacked by Rosario Murillo, who had a bit of an advantage in attacking them because she was the life partner of Daniel Ortega, who was effectively the country's leader even before he became officially president. Uh, something else that Cardinal did as Minister of Culture, as I mentioned, he part, he brought the naive painting into greater distribution, and he also found places in northern Nicaragua where there were still indigenous artisans practicing various types of um, sculpting and and uh, other sorts of uh, art. And he brought them to the cities, particularly to places like Masaya, which is a, a small city with a, a fairly large indigenous population or assimilated indigenous population. And in that way, he tried to stimulate a revival of traditional indigenous art forms that had been lost. And he was somewhat successful in that. The poetry workshops were under huge budgetary strain. And by the mid-1980s, uh, they dropped from about 80 of them to about 30 of them. And during what's called the compactacion in 1988, when the budget went under a huge crunch just because of the pressure of fighting the war against Contras, um, he, he, the Ministry of Culture was abolished. And then he just went back to Solantinami and wrote. But certainly that was uh, that creation of, I mean, there were, Salman Rushdie was very critical of his vision of, of Cardinal's vision of culture and claimed it was Stalinist. Um, I think that this does not take into account sufficiently the, either the conditions in Nicaragua, which were not overall Stalinist by any means, uh, or the conditions of a newly literate population that was just beginning to express itself. And so the, I, I think that the, it's not, it is socialist realism in a certain sense, but it was only, he knew he was doing it for the masses and that there were other people like Sergio Ramirez and Giaconda Bay and, uh, and many, uh, many of the poets who were writing literature for people who had got a little further in their reading and were ready for something a bit more sophisticated. So it wasn't, he, do, he did it knowing that it was not the only, going to be the only game in town. And I think that needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah, that's a really good point. Huh, that's very interesting. Well, let's, let's talk about the other side of the coin a little bit here. We've been very cardinal heavy, but um, uh, we should talk a bit about Sergio Ramirez as, as well, who, uh, as you note in your book, represents more of the left-wing um, politically rather than the you know the theological side of the FSLN. So what does Ramirez tell us about the Sandinista experiment and how do he and Cardinal relate to people who, as you put it in your in your work, uh, were writing Nicaragua? Yeah, he's I mean Ramirez definitely tries to capture the national the national history and part of his his intention is to 
write the history that has not been written. I mean, one rather, Nicaragua, as I said, was the land of poets, and it was the land of poets partly because prose fiction just never took root because, uh, and the usual explanation for that is that it had a, a it never developed a middle class, um, even by Central American standards. Uh, it had a large aristocratic landowning elite, and it had a, a much larger uh, landless oppressed peasant class. But it, even a country, even countries like Guatemala or Costa Rica or El Salvador had uh, had more middle more of a middle class and the middle class produced you know narratives of middle class life which tend to take the form of the novel or the short story um so Cardin, um ramirez um when he publishes his first novel in 1971 it is probably the second published novel ever by a nicaraguan which is an incredible thing to think of mm-hmm. um so the so the it's a very, uh, so he's really starting from scratch and he's trying to write the country into existence. Um, he undergoes an interesting transformation. He starts out as his father was a Somosista mayor. He was the mayor of a small town and he was a supporter of Somosa. He, you could only be a mayor if, if Somosa supported you. But then he went to university in Leon, which was the traditional place for a liberal to go to university. And he was influenced by his professor who was trying to um, obtain intellectual autonomy for the university and actually allow it to have intellectual freedom rather than just teaching what the government wanted to be taught and to turn out real professionals. And so that was one influence. Another influence was a, a riot. He was got caught in as a student in which the Somosista National Guard opened fire and killed four of his classmates, and that radicalized him a lot. And when he left, when he got married uh, right after graduating from university, he actually got a job in Costa Rica uh, running a university press uh, for all of Central America from Costa Rica. And this allowed him to travel all over Central America and develop quite a lot of perspective. But he became a great believer in Central American identity from the beginning, even though he became a believer and he was very, very concerned with writing Nicaragua into existence, writing the novelistic tradition of which the country had been deprived by the historical amnesia of the of the Somoza dictatorship. It has to be said that also one thing, I mean, Ramirez is often identified as a social democrat, which was a label that Cardinal always rejected. He always, if people would refer to referred to him as a social democrat, he would always say, I'm not a social democrat, I'm a socialist. But Ramirez did not say that. And I think part of the reason for that is that he he moved to Costa Rica at the age of 22 and lived there until he was about 37 when the Sandinista revolution took place and he was able to come back. And so he spent, you know, 15 years living in a kind of liberal democratic society and he had a vision that it wasn't a choice between dictatorship of the uh, of the strongman or dictatorship of the proletariat. He, he he saw a kind of a kind of center left option in there, a more sort of Swedish socialism, if you will. Um, and that's where that's where there's a kind of discrepancy between them. And they don't have that much contact early on. But um, in later years, particularly after 1990, when the Sandinistas are defeated, 
they end up living almost next door to each other and and become great friends and allies. Yeah, that <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, that's a great way to uh, bring Ramirez in a little bit here. Uh, really fascinating too, to hear a little bit more about that uh, lack of um, uh, prose writing in Nicaragua or, or novel writing. Um, just to turn us back to Cardinal at the end here. Um, so Cardinal died last year on March 1st. And uh, in his latter years, he became critical of the current iteration of the Sandinista movement or one part of it at least and of uh, Daniel Ortega in particular. So your book ends in 2012, but you have this really interesting uh, suggestion that um, Cardinal moves his vision of utopia outside the nation of Nicaragua as his work develops. It takes on a, a bigger kind of scale. Um, so we've talked on the show a little bit about the complex environment in Nicaragua already. We don't expect you to uh, <laughs> give us your hot take on it or, or have a stance on it or anything. But could you tell us a little bit about um, Cardinal's shifting role? in the national myth of Nicaragua. Everything changed after the, the, the protests in 2018, and I haven't been there since that happened, so I, I don't feel comfortable giving a, a point of view on that. But what I would say is that the, I think Cardinal was starting to move to a sort of cosmic vision of, of nationalism, even in the late 1980s, when he, he went back to Solantiname after the Ministry of Culture was dissolved and he finally finished his magnum opus, uh, the Cosmic Canticle, a 600-page poem that starts with the formation of life in the in the cosmos and, and it sort of goes from the Big Bang to the Big Bang, I guess. Um, and, in the, and there you see him adulterating old discourses, do you put it in a rather academic way. Um, he... You know, he takes the the revolutionary nationalism is in there, sure, but so is uh, is the liberation theology, and so increasingly are the discourses of physics, uh, astrophysics, and so on. So his incorporation of science into a Christian discourse is is an an achievement and a challenge that I think maybe still hasn't been completely assessed at its full worth. Um, and because of that, he became, his vision was already enlarged. Well, after 1990, he's very disillusioned with the end of the revolution. In 1994, um, by this time, the Sandinistas are out of power, having been defeated in the 1990 elections. They, in 1994, they discontinue the celebration, uh, which was an annual celebration, of the martyrs of Solentiname, that is the young men who were his protégés in his uh, in his um, Christian-based community in Solentiname, and who were murdered by the National Guard of the Somoza dictatorship. And every year, those those young men's lives had been celebrated in October. And in 1994, Daniel Ortega pulled the plug on the celebrations. And at that point, uh, Cardinal le left the Sandinista Front, and he's the first major figure to do so. He did it long before other intellectuals like uh, Ramirez or Giaconda Bey or, or Jaime Wheelock left. So the um, so the, so he's already drifting apart. Then and then he he begins to write his memoirs and reconsider his his whole life. And his memoirs are huge, three enormous volumes. And when Daniel Ortega is re-elected in 2006. 
he, I mean, he's not very enthusiastic. He told an interviewer, the, the problem with Nicaragua is we have a good right and a bad right, and we have a good left and a bad left. And we know that in this election, either the bad right or the bad left is going to win. And for him, the bad left was Ortega. The good left was the Sandinista renovation movement or Sandinista renewal movement, which was initially founded by Sergio Ramirez. And this is where they, when they became political allies in the 1990s, uh, when they tried to bring Sandinismo back to a more, as they saw it, a less dogmatic populist uh, mo movement. And that was represented by a man named Herti Luites, who I think would have beaten Daniel Ortega in the 2006 election. But very sadly, it was a very interesting case of a Jewish Sandinista, a very interesting man and very smart man. And he unfortunately died of a heart attack in the middle of the election campaign. Um, and mm. I, th I think all of Nicaragua's history over the last 15 years would be very different if he had won that election. But yeah, so he's, after 2006, Cardinal becomes a, a, a pain in the neck to Ortega. And he's constantly being harassed with lawsuits and accused of defaming people and that kind of stuff and they freeze his bank accounts. And people who had been his ideological foes in the, 19, in the 1980s, like Mario Vargas Llosa, the Peruvian novelist who is often identified with the free market right, um, actually ended up writing letters of support and denouncing Ortega's attacks on Cardenal. Um, I spoke to Cardenal in about 2006, and one, the, what really struck me was the extent to which he blamed Rosario Murillo, Daniel Ortega's uh, spouse, and of course, Cardinal's adversary for control of cultural policy way back in the 1980s. He really blamed her for diluting uh, the Sandinista movement, for changing the colors of the Sandinista flag, for taking the, the line, uh, we fight against the Yankee, the enemy of humanity, out of the Sandinista anthem, which was, of course, a great loss, um, and, <laughs> and for allying Daniel Ortega with unsavory people like Hugo Chavez. And it's very interesting to see that the Cubans had a horrendous internal debate, one of the few internal debates I've seen really surface in Cuba, uh, over whether they should support Cardenal or support Daniel Ortega when Ortega began attacking Cardenal after 2008. Um, and Fidel himself settled it by pointing to Cardenal's um, self-abnegation and anti-materialism and saying, obviously, someone who is so uncaring of material comforts is the person who any true socialist should support. And this actually took some mm. of the Cuban cultural and ideological elite by surprise because they'd been figuring their job was support to support Ortega now that he was back in power in Nicaragua. Um, the, so, yes, in later years, his role is more that of a, of a gadfly, and he, his vision of humanity uh, uh, it becomes mis increasingly mystical, not only transcontinental, but even transgalactic, I would say. Um, and I think it produces some, some really interesting poems. Uh, at the same time, there's a consciousness of Nicaragua as part, I mean, inevitably under globalization, a kind of consciousness of Nicaragua's place in the world now as a sort of subordinate of, of the Mexican NAFTA 
Mexico, Mexico's insertion into NAFTA. So and there's no way to escape that in a way. Um, and of course, his funeral was was hugely controversial with, uh, you know, Ortega thugs bursting in on it and and people like Giaconda Bayi and Sergio Ramirez having to grab the coffin and prevent it from being pushed off the table and and things like that. So it was I mean, he remained a controversial political figure right to the end. Yeah, what a it's fascinating. Yeah, super fascinating. Well, I was just going to ask, can, can I come into the close of the conversation here? Um, Cardinal is such an interesting figure, and folks who listen to our podcast are often asking, uh, you know, what what should they read by him and why? <laughs> <laughs> and so I wonder what what would you say, someone who's just uh, kind of interested in the topic? Uh, where would you suggest they go first? And then uh, maybe after that, you could tell us what your favorite. Uh, your favorite book of Cardinal? Okay, my favorite is probably the one you should start with, I think, which is Zero Hour, because it's one of the most accessible. It's a long poem. It's often published in English as Zero Hour and Other Poems. I think New Directions Books in New York did an English version with translation by Ferlinghetti, or at least a prologue by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, um, who was another friend of Cardinal's. Uh, the reason you should read Zero Hour is it's a very dramatic poem. And it's about the central event in 20th century Nicaraguan history and the Sandinista analysis of it, which is the assassination of Sandino, uh, which puts the seal on the dictatorship. So um, that's the that's where probably the most one of his most accessible longer poems. Um, I uh, the, it's tricky because a lot of the stuff I like best has not been translated or has not been translated in the form in which it uh, was published in Spanish. Um, the, the memoirs are complicated because it's three long volumes, but in Spanish, he actually separated one of those volumes into two volumes. And so as a result of that, there's a very short one called The Years in Granada, which is an account of his school days in Granada. And it's only about 180 pages. And, and that I find actually really charming and quite enlightening about about the upper class Catholic culture he was brought up in and its ideas of nation and its ideas of marriage and that sort of thing. Um, the um, Obviously, if you keep reading Cardinal, you have to get to Cosmic Canticle and there is a, a good English translation of that. And it's, yes, it's 600 pages, but it's, you, can, you don't need to read it all from beginning to end. You can dip into it almost anywhere and get caught up in mm. some sort of interesting discussion of, of um, the cosmos, or or physics, or or deity, or or nationalism, or martyrdom, or self-sacrifice, or any of these any of these uh, topics. So, so, um, but yeah, I'd say the New Directions, Zero Hour, and other poems is probably the place to start. Another in English, and and then if you're feeling brave, move on to co Cosmic Canticle, and. There's not much. Oh, um, abide in love. Since your audience is largely Christians, I mean, abide in love. Mm -hmm. His early book of of theology, which is a, about the idea of love, is, is probably a good place to start. There's also a very late book of theology, which didn't quite make it into my book because he had published a couple of the individual essays, but he hadn't put the whole book together at the time I finished writing my book. And I don't think that's out in English yet, but that will that will also be of interest to probably some of your listeners when it does come out in English. And I don't remember the title right now, unfortunately. 
<laughs> well, we'll be on the lookout. Well, uh, thanks so much, Stephen. This has been really enlightening and fun and, and great to hear uh, your your stories and your thoughts on Cardinal Ramirez and, and more. Um, I know you have a lot of other things going, other projects uh, for people who are interested in seeing more of your work. Uh, is there anything at the end here that you'd like to plug or direct people toward? Where else can they find your uh, your scholarship and whatever else? If you're interested in Nicaragua, then Sandino's Nation is is an important thing to look at, I think. And the uh, it's certainly it's the result of a lot of effort and long immersion in the subject matter. Um, and I, yeah, anything I'd like to plug, I've got a new novel out. It just came out last month, and it's called The World of After. So look that up. And I have a website, www.stephenhennigan.com. Great. Thanks so much. Uh, check it out. Sandino's Nation. Great book. Uh, thanks again, Stephen, and we look forward to uh, seeing what's next. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can definitely pick up a copy of Sandino's Nation. It is big. It's a lot of words, but boy, are they all worth reading for sure. It's really good. Uh, you can find us on Patreon and support us there at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Uh, we have a Redbubble shop if you want a sticker. Um, you can go to redbubble.com and find the Magnificast there. Uh, our music is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would else, 